I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 17. 2 Samuel 17, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 341. Page 341. July 4th is obviously an important date in American history, but since today is July 7th, I thought I'd mention something that uh, something significant that happened on this date, uh, July 7th. It involves a letter that was sent on July 7th, 1780. So in the thick of the American Revolutionary War, the letter was written by an American general to one of his British counterparts. And in this heavily coded letter, the American general reveals that he is about to be appointed to the command of West Point, and he offers to this British uh, general to surrender that strategic military post at no loss. And the name of the American general was Benedict Arnold. Now that name, Benedict Arnold, is almost exclusively associated with betrayal and treason. In fact, I just got curious about him this week as I was reading for reasons that we'll see uh, in 2 Samuel 17, and I just thought, I really don't know anything about Benedict Arnold, and so I did what you can do these days. You don't have to look in an encyclopedia. You just Google it, and you find way more information than you could ever possibly handle. And lo and behold, I read that about July 7th. So I want us to do an exercise this morning. I want you to think about all the contempt that we have for traitors like Benedict Arnold. I mean, literally, that. my, my guess is if you're anything like me, you know nothing about him except he was a traitor. Um, so think about all the contempt we have for traitors like him. We're right to be appalled at someone who would trade his countrymen for 20,000 pounds. That's how much he got paid for that little deal, or he was going to get paid. Um, and so just let the righteous outrage over that cowardice and greed swell in your chest. And now I have some bad news for us that you and I have done something infinitely worse than Benedict Arnold ever did or ever planned to do that we have betrayed and rebelled against not an earthly nation, but against a heavenly king, against our very creator. Yet the one we have betrayed and rebelled against extends to us mercy and pardon. And so in our text this morning, we're going to catch a glimpse of what happens to those who betray the Lord's anointed king. It does not end well. But there is still hope for us who have rebelled to repent and to seek asylum in the Lord's King. He promises to receive those who come to Him in humble faith. Now before we begin reading, um, I want to give you a little bit of background that's going to help us, I think, make sense of what we're reading. So you have David, who is the King of Israel. He has been driven from his capital in Jerusalem because of a rebellion that was led by his own son, Absalom. And this rebellion led to a big question in the, uh, for everyone involved in the government. The question that everyone had to answer was, would they follow Absalom or would they remain loyal to David? And there was one advisor in particular that the author singled out as a significant loss for David and a significant gain for Absalom. His name was Ahithophel. I want you to notice, we're going to focus on chapter 17 this morning, but I want you to notice how chapter 16 ends. 
Chapter 16 says in the last verse, verse 23, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So this man Ahithophel, his advice is good. And the problem for David is that he's not on David's side. And so let's read in chapter 17 and see what happens. We'll begin in chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he, was, while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom, and all the elders of Israel. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful, uh, God, that you, as we read in Isaiah 45 earlier, Lord, that you have not spoken in secret, that you have not concealed your thoughts, that you've not concealed your character, that you've not concealed the story of the wonderful things you have done. And so this morning, Lord, we're, we're just looking at a glimpse of one sliver of that story. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we read this, God, that we would see how we all are like Ahithophel. And Lord, that we have plans and we think that we are wise, and yet all of the wisdom of the world fails miserably when it comes up against your will. And so, God, help us, unlike Ahithophel, to repent and to come to King Jesus in humility and plead with Him for forgiveness for what we have done. And we pray all this in His name. Amen. We're going to break this passage down into several scenes. So we're going to read more than just those four verses, but I wanted us to start there because we're going to sort of see several different scenes. But there are basically two truths that we're going to see about God through all of these scenes. The first truth is that the Lord defeats His enemies. The Lord defeats His enemies. It is important to remember that despite how grievously David has sinned, back in chapter 11 when he lusted after Bathsheba and then committed adultery with her and then had her husband murdered to cover that sin up, despite how grievously David has acted, he is still God's appointed king. God has not taken away his anointing from David. And so when men like Ahithophel and Absalom set themselves against David, they're not just going up against David, they're setting themselves up against the Lord God. And the author has prepared us to hear this counsel that Ahithophel gives as good and right if you're looking at this story from Absalom's perspective. In other words, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Absalom and our goal is just to win this rebellion, then the author has prepared us to hear Ahithophel's counsel as sound from a strategic military perspective. But the most brilliant strategizing of the sharpest military minds is worthless and ineffective if God is against it. That's a lesson that Ahithophel and Absalom are about to learn the hard way. Now we're going to look more carefully at what exactly Ahithophel proposes in a moment. 
But first, I just want you to notice something really bizarre that happens here. Verse 4 says, And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. But notice verse 5, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So, here's the picture. Absalom has all the elders gathered together in this kind of war council. This is like the Israelite Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting. They hear Ahithophel's proposed strategy, and they all agree, including Absalom, that it is sound. Yes, that sounds like a good plan. But then, without any explanation, Absalom decides to bring in this man named Hushai for a second opinion. So everybody's agreed that the proposal that Ahithophel gives is good, and yet... For some reason that the author does not tell us, Absalom says, well, why don't we bring in Hushai and let's just see what he thinks. So before we keep going, let me remind you of who Hushai is because this is a guy who's also been introduced to us back in chapter 15. So back in chapter 15, David is literally fleeing from Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion. And while he's on his way up the Mount of Olives, he gets word that Ahithophel, this guy whose counsel is really, really good, was among the conspirators with Absalom. So Ahithophel has defected to Absalom, and David is noticeably concerned. He, he reacts by praying. And he prays specifically that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. So he knows Ahithophel is a wise good counselor. And so he just prays, Lord, would you turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness? And as soon as David gets that prayer out of his mouth, here comes this man named Hushai. He shows up, he's covered in dirt, his clothes are torn, and yet David wisely sees Hushai as an unexpected answer to his prayer. And so he sees this opportunity. I can send Hushai back to Jerusalem. Don't go with me. Go back to Jerusalem. Go and stay close to Absalom and offer to help him. Put yourself at his, at his uh, service and say, I I'm here to help you, Absalom. I want to make you be successful. And by doing so, David told Hushai, you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. So when we get to chapter 17, the author has prepared us to see this duel between Ahithophel and Hushai. And it's not a duel of military power. It's a duel of counsel. Ahithophel is a valuable advisor to Absalom. Hushai is someone who could potentially defeat Ahithophel's counsel. So let's read and see if that's what happens. So let's pick back up at chapter 17, verse 6. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not... You speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. 
So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring, bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Now, now that we've heard from both Hushai and Ahithophel, we can compare the two. The first observation is in the length of their proposals. It took me a lot longer to read Hushai's proposal than it took Ahithophel's. And sometimes when people pile up words, that's not because they have good ideas, it's because they're just trying to put up a smoke screen that they, they, they don't have good ideas. Ahithophel's pitch is noticeably brief. He basically says, we need to strike while the iron's hot. He encourages Absalom to send out a small, relatively small force to pursue David quickly while he's disoriented, while it's dark. We'll kill him alone so there won't be massive loss of life. Once he is dead, the rest of his people will lose heart and turn to follow you. And you'll get exactly what you want, Absalom. You will have all these people who follow you, and the only person dead will be David. Everything about the context suggests that Ahithophel's proposal is the sound proposal. It's the one that Absalom would be wise to follow if his desire is to win. Hushai contradicts Ahithophel in a couple of significant ways, uh, not only in the length of it, but also that Hushai's plan has the appearance of caution. He says in verse 8, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. So, in other words, if you, Absalom, if you rush into battle, you're going up against seasoned warriors, you risk suffering an initial defeat and losing the morale of your men. Even if it's not a big defeat, even if it's just a few people die, the, the rumor is going to be that Absalom's men have suffered a slaughter. So he says in verse 10, Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. So David has the narrative on his side. Everyone knows that he's a mighty warrior and that he has the very best fighters with him, even if they might be less in number. And so you need to be cautious, Absalom. In addition to the appearance of caution, Hushai does something else, and this is probably the more significant thing. His proposal appeals to Absalom's sense of pride. I want you to notice in Ahithophel's plan, who is the decisive actor? Who is the one who is taking action according to Ahithophel's plan? Notice verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you. So in Ahithophel's plan, Ahithophel is the one who's going to go. Let me choose the men. I will arise and pursue David. I will strike him down, and I will bring all the people back to you. Now, if you're Ahithophel, probably what he's thinking is, this keeps Absalom protected. This does not put him in danger. I'm the one who's risking my neck. I'm the one who's going out leading this covert strike to, to kill David. If anyone dies, it might be me. But if you're Absalom, 
And then Hushai comes in, and as we're going to see in a second, his counterproposal, what Hushai is showing is, listen, there's a danger here, Absalom, that Ahithophel goes out and he's successful, but then he gets all the credit. You have to take him at his word. What if he doesn't actually bring all those people back to you? What if he takes control of them and he comes in and leads a rebellion against you? Then he has all those valiant men on his side. Sure, he's only going to kill David because he wants to be in charge. In Hushai's proposal, Absalom is the hero of the story. Notice what he says in verse 11. So this is Hushai speaking to Absalom. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. Absalom, there's glory in this for you. Ahithophel has this idea of getting 12,000 men and taking them on this covert strike. But wouldn't it be more impressive if you, Absalom, if you summoned all of Israel to you and you went out and led them in battle? So, on the one hand, Hushai's proposal is genius because he weaves together enough logic and caution with a heavy dose of ego stroking that... He convinces Absalom. He, he pretends to be helping Absalom ma maintain his honor as king, when in reality what Hushai is doing is he's purchasing time for David and his men because it's going to take a lot more time to gather this huge army. That's going to give David and his men time to get across the Jordan River and to fortify themselves and regroup for battle. So Hushai's plan is genius. He seems to be helping Absalom, but in reality, he's hurting him. But I want you to see the author goes out of his way not to attribute credit to the genius of Hushai. The second half of verse 14 is a real turning point. It says, well, verse 14 says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then this is the commentary that the author gives us. This is God-inspired commentary on the story. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So Ahithophel's defeat in the war room and Absalom's defeat on the battlefield were both ordained by the Lord. By setting themselves against David, these men were setting themselves against the Lord. And the first truth we see about God in this passage is that the Lord defeats His enemies. The second truth I want you to see with me is that the Lord preserves His anointed. The Lord preserves His anointed. So, again, chapter 15 is a really important prequel to chapter 17. Back in chapter 15 when David sent Hushai to Jerusalem to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel... David had to come up with some kind of plan because it, it wouldn't work if all you had was David out in the wilderness trying to figure out what was going on and you had Hushai there at Absalom uh, telling him things. There, there needed to be a way that they could communicate between one another. And so David set up basically this kind of spy network. Um, I want to try to visualize this because once we get into these next verses, I had to help myself to have a visual of this. So you have Hushai on one end of this data stream. He's there in Absalom's palace. He's there uh, listening, just trying to be helpful. Then you have these two priests named Zadok and Abiathar. 
And uh, so Hushai was, he could, you know, the priests were in Jerusalem. Um, David had sent them back to Jerusalem as well. And so Hushai was supposed to somehow get word to these two priests about what Absalom was planning to do. Those priests, Zadok and Abiathar, had two sons named Ahimaaz and Jonathan. So Zadok and Abiathar, they couldn't leave Jerusalem without someone noticing, but their sons could. So they would then communicate with their sons, and then their sons would risk uh, going out and communicating to David what, what was going on. So all this information would be relayed from Absalom through Hushai through these priests to David. And so with that in mind, let's pick back up at verse 15, and you're going to sort of need to know uh, this process as you read verses 15 and following. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were awaiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Now, on one hand, this part of the story, you can read it in a very suspenseful way. Uh, Zadok and Abiathar, they can't go and tell Jonathan and Ahimaaz themselves. Jonathan and Ahimaaz can't risk coming into the city, so they have to send word via this female servant. But one of Absalom's servants see this exchange happening place and gets suspicious and follows them. And so these two spies end up literally hiding in a well. This woman has to lie to, to get Absalom's servants to leave them alone. And uh, after a very, close, a very close call, the coast is clear, and they make their way to David to give him their report. So it's, it's suspenseful. It's kind of a nail-biter. But on the other hand, there's no reason for us to be held in suspense because the author has just told us in verse 14 something that the, the people in the story don't fully know, that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. In other words, Absalom may have Ahithophel on his side, but David, imperfect as he is, has the Lord on his side. There's no reason for us to fear what is about to happen to David. The Lord will preserve His anointed. So I want us to think about that second truth. The Lord will preserve His anointed. I was very careful and intentional in which words I capitalized in that second truth. The Lord preserves His anointed, lowercase a. There are two complementary truths that are running through this section of 2 Samuel. First is that David is God's anointed. Lowercase a. He is a Messiah, lowercase m. The word Messiah is just the Hebrew word that means anointed one. Um, 
So David is an anointed one. He is God's anointed king for this time in Israel's history. But while David is God's anointed, lowercase a, while he is a Messiah, lowercase m, he is not God's capital A anointed. He is not the Messiah. That title is reserved for David's descendant, Jesus. In fact, the reason God is preserving David is because of the covenant God made with him, the covenant that included a promise of an eternal kingdom for David's son, capital S. The true son of David who will reign eternally is not Absalom, it's not Solomon, it is Jesus. So, so when I say that the Lord preserves His anointed, I mean that He preserves David for Jesus' sake. Jesus is truly God's anointed. He is the Messiah. And before the author tells us about what happened with the impending battle, he paints this scene in verse 23 of what happened to Ahithophel. Look at verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And that's it. The author does not comment any further than that. Of course, he does not commend Ahithophel's actions to us. It's a sad picture of a man who sets himself against the Lord and against his anointed. Ahithophel, in characteristic fashion, sees the writing on the wall. He sees Absalom is going to be defeated. There is not going to be a place for a traitor like me in David's administration. So he takes the inevitable into his own hands and he hangs himself. It's a picture of someone who rebels against the Lord's anointed and thus against the Lord Himself, and it ends in death and destruction. I said at the beginning that all of us have done something infinitely worse than Benedict Arnold, that we are more like Ahithophel. Ahithophel helps us to see that, that apart from God's grace in Christ, we are all like Him. And the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the story of Scripture, praise God, does not end there. There is good news if we will listen and heed the warning of Ahithophel. And so I just want us to kind of play a little bit of what if this morning. Ahithophel, we know, was very smart. He was, you know, a chess player. He could see several moves ahead. And he reasoned that his betrayal was too deep, that his rebellion was unforgivable, that if David returns to Jerusalem, as he eventually will, that there won't be any place for me in his kingdom. And so I might as well go home and get my affairs in order and just take my own life. There's no other solution in his mind than that. So what if? What if he didn't do that? What would have happened? I can't say for certain. I can't say for certain what David would have done to Ahithophel if he had truly repented and asked for forgiveness. If Ahithophel had come and bowed himself before David and said, King David, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the Lord. I see my wrong. I see my sin. I hate my sin. I hate what I have done to you. Would you please forgive me? I cannot tell you for certain what David would have done. But there is one thing that I can tell you for certain. That Jesus extends mercy to His enemies. 
I can tell you for certain that each one of us has rebelled against the Lord's anointed, capital A. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. And what did Jesus do in response to our betrayal and our rebellion? He laid down His life. Colossians 1, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So you once, Paul says, were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and yet God in Christ has reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. He has reconciled you to God in order to present you not as an enemy of God, but holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were like Ahithophel, Christ died for us. So the Lord preserved His anointed from death. We see a shadow of that here in the life of David. God preserves David from the schemes of Ahithophel. That's just a shadow of what the Lord would do for Jesus because the Lord literally preserved Jesus from death. God did not abandon His body to the grave, nor His soul to death, but He raised Him up and exalted Him to the, His own right hand and bestowed on Him the name above every name. So the Lord has preserved His anointed one. It's also true that the Lord will one day defeat all His enemies. So what I don't want to take away from this is, okay, well, there's no such thing as God's enemies anymore because that's not true. Paul says in Acts 17, that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So the death and resurrection of Jesus are the guarantee of both of those truths, that God has preserved His anointed and that He will one day defeat His enemies. In the meantime, however... God extends pardon and forgiveness and asylum to His enemies. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And His promise is that no one who trusts in Him will be put to shame. But today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So, so we are all in that period just before verse 23, when we have rebelled and betrayed against the Lord's anointed. And the question now is, do we, like Ahithophel, take matters into our own hands, not necessarily by committing literal physical suicide, but by committing spiritual suicide and continuing to refuse to come to the Lord's anointed King in humility and plead with Him for forgiveness? Or will we, unlike Ahithophel, humble ourselves, cast ourselves on His mercy, and say, Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God in which we are encouraged and welcomed to come to Jesus and we're also warned about the danger of not coming to Him. And so I, I'm going to be sitting at the head of the aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful, um, Lord, for the warnings that you give us in your word. Some of them very uh, 
clear and explicit and some of them a little bit more veiled like the one we read today. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we are all like Ahithophel. Every one of us has rebelled against you. We have sinned against you. We have betrayed you, our Creator. And Lord, your, your promise is that you have fixed a day on which you're going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom you have appointed. And so we know that that day is fixed. And Lord, none of us knows how many days are in between this day and that day. And so Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to, unlike Ahithophel, humble ourselves before you and plead with you for asylum, for refuge, for forgiveness. Lord, some of us in this room have done that, and I praise you for that. Perhaps there's someone here today who needs to do that today. Perhaps there's some who aren't here today who need to hear this from our lips. God, help us to be faithful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number